This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on summer vacation. Mixing and matching COVID vaccines. It's become the Canadian way. Widely endorsed by the top health experts based on research out of the United Kingdom, Spain, and Germany. Many of us, many of us Canadians have been happily mixing and matching our way out of the pandemic. Personally, I received AstraZeneca first and Moderna second. I feel great. I've always felt safe. I'm confident that I am as protected as possible against COVID-19. What about you? What is uh what has been your vaccine story? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. Now the reason I'm asking is because of those confusing, misleading and damaging comments made yesterday by the chief scientist of the World Health Organization. Dr. Sumya Swaminathan first told reporters that mixing and matching is dangerous. Mixing and matching is dangerous, she said, because there is not currently enough data to support it. She added that it will be a chaotic situation in countries if citizens start deciding when and who will be taking a second, a third, and a fourth dose. Dr. Swaminathan later clarified on Twitter she was warning against individuals deciding to mix and match on their own, but that public health agencies can decide on mixing and matching based on available data. Sadly, it's the WHO's chief scientist who is creating the chaos by placing doubt into our system of vaccination in Canada. Joining me to discuss, Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University, and Dr. Tanya Watts, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto, an esteemed paddle indeed. Hello to you all. Good afternoon. Hi. So I will begin by getting your separate reactions to this development. Justin Bates. Well, I'm so happy we're having this conversation because if we've learned anything throughout the vaccination rollout and the pandemic, it's that science communications is critical to giving confidence and addressing some of the concerns of the public and and vaccine hesitancy. And sometimes context does matter and we have to understand you know, what the intent was of the comments most recently by the World Health Organization, which was in a very specific question around boosters, third shots, and uh, going outside of public health guidance and regulations. So within that context, uh, it's perhaps more understandable. But people pick up on words like dangerous, and that causes unnecessary concerns. And instantaneously, our members, pharmacists who are involved and participating in the program, get calls. People are concerned about the validity and the science behind mixing, which we know is safe. We know based on the data, and we know that this is a common practice, mixing therapies in pharmaceutical care. So we're certainly not introducing any additional risks for people. But um, how we communicate, and we've seen it with NACI as well here domestically, is just uh, very important um, in giving succinct and clear messaging to people. Dr. Evans, your reaction? Yeah, I, it's kind of interesting because I'm on a bit of a roll with this. I, I think this is the reflection of how not to communicate with the world through a 280-character uh, limit, which is what you see on Twitter. Uh, uh, Justin's comments are very valid around the issue that, of course, singular words oftentimes stick out uh, and bother people uh, and, and draw attention to something. And I think the use of the word dangerous was really clearly uh, not appropriate within the context of the of the tweet, and I think ultimately, uh, you know, you then spend a considerable amount of time trying to dial back and say, well, here's what I really meant. And I take them on face value. What they really meant was, and the reason I think that they were fairly emphatic within the that first sort of poorly worded message was um, this sort of movement now quickly that we're starting to see generated by pharmaceutical 
manufacturers about getting third doses or fourth doses because that needs to be approached really carefully um, and thought out because right now the most important thing I would say other than getting you know, a, a country like Canada or a province like Ontario fully vaccinated is to make sure that available vaccine that's being manufactured is rolled out across the planet. Global control of this um, infection is incredibly important because countries where there are a lot of uh, ongoing replication of virus are the potential generators of uh, variants which which could pose a challenge to us going into the future. So I, I think this is really a function, unfortunately, of this whole communication issue and using Twitter. Dr. Watts, your initial reaction? Yes, yeah, so I think I can reiterate um, many of the same uh, comments. I, I wouldn't be so hurt on, on the WHO in the sense that this was a snippet taken by the media out of a, a longer conversation. So I think it really was misunderstood. Um, but the word, obviously, dangerous is, is really upsetting to people. I think the real issue has been, you know, do, do people need third doses? Israel has started um, giving third doses to the immunocompromised. So we have emerging data only as long as the vaccines have been given. And right now, the data out to about seven months is if you're a healthy person and you've had um, two doses of the vaccine, you're, you're good for now. You don't need to worry about a third dose. And really, you should be trusting the public health authorities to tell you when that third dose, if it is needed, is needed. But there are some very specific groups like end-stage kidney disease, transplant, where they have very poor responses, and there's been shown to be benefit for a third dose. And again, these need to be decisions made by the um, medical professionals and the public health um decision-makers. But Dr. Evans, I'll go to Dr. Evans now, why would the chief scientist at the WHO say this, even in her clarification? Um, So I'm asking here, what individuals around the world are deciding on their personal vaccine regimen should they need a third or fourth dose? Well, I, I think, frankly, it's a pitch at individual countries where those decisions are currently being discussed. Uh, the Israelis, as as uh, Dr. Rott was just pointing out, uh, are already beginning to roll it out. However, they're rolling it out to a group where we have good scientific evidence that a third dose may be actually beneficial because of a suboptimal uh, response to just two doses. And she mentioned transplant recipients, uh, those people who have uh, who have kidney disease and are on dialysis or other forms of renal replacement therapy. So the problem I think the WHO is trying to pitch is that we don't want to see this happening sort of country by country. And and again. The Americans have already entered into discussions with Pfizer, nominally to look at what data Pfizer has on this. Um, and so it's really important to sort of make sure those conversations take into account the totality of what we're facing with COVID-19 globally and not just going to, you know, well-resourced countries that can afford uh, to do something like third dosing um, outside of, of a risk population and a general population. And I, so I think that's I think that's essentially where that came from, but okay. it required a lot of work to sort of well, right, you know, because, dial it back and explain it. Right. When you hear individuals, you think of people. If she had said individual nations, that, that would make more sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Justin, there's already some nervousness around switching up manufacturers between the first and second doses. Your pharmacists are experiencing this firsthand, Yes. We certainly are, and and it starts with the understanding of what the science and technology is behind mRNA vaccines, which were under development for years before the COVID vaccine was approved under an emergency use application, but understanding that they are interchangeable, that it is safe to mix between Moderna and Pfizer and Pfizer and Moderna. You're going to get the same spike protein immune response. And I think what we're seeing, at least in the Canadian context, is this brand awareness and public perception or misperception around the efficacy and safety of Moderna uh, versus Pfizer because people recognize Pfizer. They know that uh, brand and may have less brand awareness uh, and a recognition of Moderna. And then I do think there are legitimate concerns people have about mixing from a viral vector vaccine like AstraZeneca to an mRNA. And we've had to address those uh, with primary care physicians and pharmacists and nurses uh, around the science and what the data is telling us. The science is evolving, and I think people are not accustomed to that, seeing real-world evidence of these vaccines with new data that allows us to do mathematical modeling for things like storage and handling changes to the criteria, the intervals, the time intervals where we saw 
lots of controversy in the early days of going out 16 weeks versus what's in the product monograph of four weeks um, and different immune responses with that data that we're seeing. The studies have shown that switching between uh, an AstraZeneca first dose to an mRNA second dose, specifically Pfizer, actually could have a stronger immune response. So that's what the data they're using out of the Spain and Germany Uh, specifically those studies and as well as the UK. We're talking about the safety and efficacy of mixing and matching vaccine doses in light of confusing comments by the World Health Organization yesterday. Uh, It's Jane for Libby here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. That was Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. Dr. Gerald Evans is with us from Queen's University and Dr. Tanya Watts from the University of Toronto. I want to uh, go to the phones now. There are some questions and comments. Lynn from Scarborough, go ahead. Hello, um, I am, um, I've had two shots of Moderna, which I'm happy about. I'm 70. I also have a, 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 a case of COPD. Um, what alarms me is, is that people seem to think that by getting vaccinated, that precludes them ever getting sick. And it just, it just isn't like that. You mean in terms of side effects, Lynn? Oh, we've lost her there. Um, like they get like a suit armor, but it's more just a shield, you know. So, so parts of them will still be part of them will actually be still um, susceptible, possibly because. Of- Okay, Lynn's line is going in and out. Thank you for calling, Lynn. Um, two doses of Moderna was her experience. Darlene in Saint Catharines. What about you? Hi, uh, Jane. It's. Uh- it's nice to speak with you. You too. Um, I my first dose, I had the Pfizer, and then I had a reaction to it. Um, at least I think I did because it felt like somebody was sitting on my chest. And then when I coughed, every nerve in my body hurt. So then I went to my pharmacist, and I said, "Well, what about the Moderna?" And he said, um, "No." And then I went to my doctor, and he said, "Yes." He says, don't go for the Pfizer. You make sure you come in for the Moderna. So then I went for the Moderna yesterday. And today, I'm just sleeping it all off because I feel like a truck hit me. Oh, so you had a similar reaction with both mRNA vaccines. Uh, but the Pfizer was worse. Okay. All right. It well, I, I want to hear from the experts on that. So thank you for your call, Darlene. Um, Dr. Watts, is the response very much individual or are the side effects linked to the vaccine? Well, I mean, um, these vaccines all um, are waking up your immune system. So you will have, many people will have some sort of reactive um, local um, inflammation, but it's very variable between individuals and not necessarily um, associated whether you got a good antibody response or not. Although some vaccines are more, um, you know, have more um, reactogenicity than others. And in fact, I think some people have found that the AstraZeneca has more side effects. But there is definitely a a lot of uh, variability between people. Dr. Evans, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'll hear people say, oh, I think the reaction's worse with Moderna. Or I had, you know, because that individual had a bad reaction with AstraZeneca, then they think everybody's going to have that reaction. Um, The reaction is very much individual, yes? It is, yeah, very much so. And, and, you know, uh, the uh, I think it's really important that people understand that 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 is a, a very much a kind of uh, effect that they're seeing from, from themselves. All of these vaccines are going to produce a little bit of a side effect. Almost every vaccine does to some extent. And, and really the issue is, is that we know that the safety issue with these is, is enormously high. Uh, the Moderna vaccine has a little bit more of the mRNA in a dose. It has uh, 100 uh, micrograms versus 30 micrograms in the Pfizer dose. But essentially it's almost the same uh, mRNA thing. There's a different lipid component in each of those vaccines. And some of those things can all influence what sort of individual response someone may have. Uh, but, you know, Dr. Watts really touched on the issue that, um, you know, you're, uh, you, you can't use that to gauge your response. And some of these, I mean, I had 
both my shots, and each one of them I had a reaction to. I accepted that as a really minor, small role of short-term pain for very long-term gain, and I think that's what we really need to keep emphasizing with these vaccines. We're talking about mixing and matching vaccine doses, and I'd like to hear from you as well as our esteemed health expert panelists here today. Numbers to call. We need to take a quick break, but Give us a ring. We've got some of you waiting, but we do have an open line. 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host, Jane Brown. We are talking about the Canadian approach uh, approved by health experts nationwide on mixing and matching vaccine doses for first and second doses of COVID vaccine and and how we are on the right track, despite what was said or what was misinterpreted by the chief scientists of the World Health Organization yesterday. I'm joined by Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association, Dr. Gerald Evans. Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University and Dr. Tanya Watts, Professor of Immunology at the University of Toronto. Uh, Phone lines are jammed again. I will get to you in just a moment. Justin, I want to ask you because there was some confusion a few weeks back after NACI advised against a second dose of AstraZeneca for first dose AstraZeneca recipients. Uh, is, Is anybody asking for AstraZeneca after that? Yeah, the AstraZeneca effect has been like a yo-yo. I think from its initial uh, application in February to the rollout starting in March, we certainly have looked at the data as being monitored, and it's been very transparent looking at the the instances of VITT, the blood clot issue, uh, both in the first and second dose. So taking a, a measured and responsible approach to it has always made sense. I think, again, the messaging could have been better in terms of how it's been communicated, uh, and there's a lot of people out there that are concerned about the fact that they had an AstraZeneca as a first dose. Uh, our messaging has been the same all the way through, which is continue to reinforce getting the vaccine that's available to you first. You're better off getting the protection that all of the vaccines provide than introducing more risk of getting um, a case of COVID and potentially hospitalization or worse. Um, it did cause a lot of anxiety, a lot of calls into healthcare providers trying to sort through all of the information and determine what's in their best interest under an informed consent model. Um, we're seeing about, uh, I would say, about 25% of people who got a first dose of AstraZeneca elect to get a second dose of AstraZeneca. So the rest are getting either Moderna or Pfizer as an mRNA second dose. And I think that's largely because of the risks that they've heard, even though they're very low um, in relative terms, of getting blood clots and uh, and the messaging coming from NASI has created some some concerns for people. Interesting. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. Let's go to Rick in Wasaga Beach. Uh, what is your question or comment, Rick? Um, I had both uh, first and second doses of AstraZeneca uh, planning on going on a on vacation to the States, perhaps it will not be recognized. Should I be getting a third shot of either Moderna or Pfizer? And a second type of a question is, can you not be tested to see what immune response you now have as to whether or not it's necessary to have a third shot? Dr. Evans, I'll go to you first. Um, in terms, I guess Rick is basically asking about a booster uh, and whether that is necessary for international travel at this point. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great question, Rick. Asked. I'll, I'll answer it this way. First of all, the Americans have accepted any WHO-recognized uh, uh, vaccine. Double vaccination represents full vaccination. There was a whole thing going on with the Bruce Springsteen Broadway show that right. suggested early on they weren't, so they will. So you do not need another messenger an RNA shot. And I would wait to see as the emerging evidence comes out, as we've already been talking about around 
round boosters, et cetera. So, uh, no, that, that's not centric. And that double shot of AstraZeneca is going to really provide amazing protective immunity from getting uh, sick from COVID. And certainly, if you get sick with COVID, not likely to be severe enough that you would need to be hospitalized or have more adverse outcomes. I, I think that needs to be reinforced. And it's a little bit on what Justin had mentioned already. All of these vaccines provide enormous protective immunity from serious disease. It's not 100%, but it's awfully darn close. Um, and the other form of immunity, what we call sterilizing immunity, which prevents infection, that's what's still being uh, looked at. But there appears to be some evidence that all of the vaccines provide some sterilizing immunity, which might favor a little bit the mRNA vaccine. Dr. Watts, would you like to add to that? Yeah, I think one of the questions, other than the whether that uh, vaccine schedule would be accepted in the U.S., was, you know, how do I know when I need a boost? And I don't think we're going to be measuring individual immune responses on, you know, millions of people to make that decision. I think we need to um, rely on the public health um, expertise and emerging data. So we know that two doses of these vaccines are very good and giving an enormous level of protection uh, as long as we've been looking. Um, and so what we have to now watch is as a population level, as with variants circulating, how are we seeing breakthrough infections uh, in countries where they have seen them? They've largely been in older people or um, immunocompromised. And there's a very, very high level of protection after two doses in healthy people, although not every vaccine is 100%. So there can still be some infections, but as you heard, they'd be much, much milder and wouldn't land you in the hospital. And so really, I think we have to watch over time. Our studies are also ongoing with the different combinations of vaccines, as well as um, whether you have the same one twice, you have a mixture, when you had a boost. Where studies are ongoing to really see how long immunity uh, remains protective, and that's just going to take time. And then public health authorities are going to have to react to that if at some point we need a third dose in the population as a whole. And it's quite possible that we won't or that um, that we'll end up with a, a new boost against a variant in the future, and it's still too early to tell that. Rick, thank you. Let's go to George in Scarborough, your comment. Oh, I'm sorry. Is, is this for George? This is for George. Go ahead. You're on yeah. the air. I, sorry. I think I, I, I uh, have an overlap with Rick's question. Um, I had the uh, quickly the Pfizer and Moderna. I feel fine except for a sore arm. Yes. And so well, my question was, uh, I'm wondering if I'm the 10% uh, of the population that where the vaccine doesn't work. So is there a blood test I can actually get or is, that exists, a reliable blood test that can test whether I have the antibodies? I think our experts are saying that that is not likely to happen. Am I right in that, Dr. Watts? Yeah, I would say, first of all, when you say 10% that it doesn't work, I don't think that's really what the data means. I think what it means is that of the people infected, 90% would be, let's say 95% are fully protected from infection, so um, no infection at all. About 100% won't end up, you know, almost 100% won't end up in hospital. Now, there's always exceptions, rare people who don't respond to a particular vaccine or, as you heard, people who are immunocompromised due to their medications they're on. But generally, I don't think you, you need to worry that you're not protected on a population-wide basis. There's good evidence for very high-level protection against hospitalization and death. Um, the reason we want everyone to get vaccinated is by everyone getting vaccinated, that actually protects the rare people who might not respond to a particular vaccine or who are immunocompromised, who are just very old and no longer have a good immune system. Okay. So really, I think we need to make population-wide decisions on this. All right, let's go. I think we can fit in one more call. Ron from Georgina, you're on Fight Back. Hi, uh, Jane. Yes, I had the Pfizer and I had the Moderna. And I had a reaction to the Pfizer. I broke out in hives. So I, I don't know. And uh, like I've talked to you before, I have bladder cancer. Would these, uh, the two injections, would they help me with that bladder cancer? Oh, uh, okay. Thank you for calling, Ron. And I, I do remember you. Uh, so it's nice to hear from you again. Um, can I put that question to Dr. Evans? 
Yeah, I, I'm happy to answer that. Um, I'm trying to get the idea, just having cancer doesn't make you less likely to respond to a vaccine. It relates to the treatment you might be receiving for a cancer uh, that would be immunosuppressive and prevent certain responses within the cells in our body, the immune cells, B cells and T cells that tend to react to an antigen. So uh, just having cancer or having had a history of cancer is not relevant, but if you're on active treatment, you should reach out to your physician to look at it. I do want to discuss this issue about tests. People keep asking, is there a test I can do that'll tell me uh, something about it. Uh, actually, no. Um, the problem with all of the stuff that one reads about in terms of antibody levels and et cetera, which are actually relatively easy to measure, is they're a surrogate marker. They, they, they'll be elevated in anybody who gets the vaccine pretty well, less so in some individuals who may have underlying reasons for not developing those antibodies to high levels. But the actual level of antibody, which we might measure, doesn't necessarily have a correlate with your immune response. Most people are going to get measurable antibodies. Almost all of those people are going to have protection. But there isn't like I can measure and say, well, your antibody levels have fallen so low, so I need to boost you. That's not how we're going to look at this, because as Dr. Watt would explain, as a, as a scientist in immunology, uh, the complexity of the immune system, the fact that antibodies actually undergo maturity as you're exposed to them so that they become more efficient at recognizing the antigen is all part and parcel of it. So a simple blood test with a simple level is not giving the answer, which I think a lot of people are asking. Oh, well, thank you for clarifying that. And we will have to leave it there just because we're coming up on one o'clock. Uh, thank you all. I hope you'll join us again here on Fight Back soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Gerald Evans is chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University. Dr. Tanya Watts, professor of immunology at the University of Toronto. And Justin Bates, CEO of the Ontario Pharmacists Association. The news is coming up next. I will talk to you again tomorrow morning on the Morning Zoom with Sam and then again at noon here on Fight Back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Jane Brown. Libby is on vacation this week, but our Tuesday strategy panelists are all here. John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road. Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village. And Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Hello, panel. Hi, Jane. Hi. Hi, Jane. Hey, Jane. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, before we get into the topics of the day, uh, Karen, you have some good news to share about Variety Village and funding from the province. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, thanks, Jane. We did. Uh, Variety Village received a million dollars in operational funding from the province. And uh, this was uh, critical funding because we've, as you know, Variety Village has been largely shut over the last year. And so this funding was really well received and uh, helpful for us to be able to continue to deliver, to deliver programming for kids with disability. And a million dollars, it sounds like a lot, but when you're running an organization like Variety Village, it really isn't all that much money, but I, I'm, I'm sure it will go towards uh, salaries, needed programs, everything wonderful that you're doing there. Yeah, thank you, Jane. Yes, it was uh, very, very well received by the community. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, our first topic. And it's there's a lot of strategy involved in what health experts and representatives of the provincial and federal governments are, are having to do. They're basically in damage control since yesterday afternoon when the chief scientist at the World Health Organization made some confusing and controversial remarks about the danger of mixing and matching COVID vaccine doses. She later clarified she was referring to individuals who do this and not public health agencies that make policy related to research data. So I want to ask you all how well this was handling, considering the comments were completely unexpected. John, I'll start with you. Well, you know, and I think, Jane, this is uh, the kind of stuff that drives um, and, and makes politicians and other areas uh, around the globe sort of, you know, just crazy. Because quite frankly, who has had a number of missteps over the course of this pandemic? Uh, and, and, you know, and there's reasons why other countries have always looked at who and, and with, with a bit of a jaundiced eye, uh, because they, they just they have these mixed messages. So this is a, yet another example of, of, of a health official there who basically said, you know, and again, it, it, she's, I think she's walked it back now, but she was basically saying that mixed 
mixed doses or or vaccines was uh, was a problem. Uh, you know, when she met and she wasn't clear enough to say that it wasn't so much mixing. Uh, vaccines, but but the potential of of having third or fourth doses, and that all comes around because Pfizer has made a request to to the U.S. FDA uh, for a potential third dose because they're viewing it and they're seeing that as as variants come around and others um, that the efficacy might might not be as strong with two, but they might need a third. So you got who coming up saying this is well, you know, you should be mixing and you should be careful of it of it, and it wasn't clear, but it's the kind of it, it's the kind of uh, mistakes uh, and mismessaging that causes people, especially now that we're trying to get the, the remaining 20, 30% of people who aren't vaccinated, either first or second, um, to get vaccinated. Because they're saying, you know what, they're throwing their hands up in the air saying, well, you know, who can we trust? We can't trust anybody with this. And it's causing problems. And I think it's going to cause an issue uh, as we try to get, you know, people uh, on the second doses up to uh, beyond the 60, 70 percent range. But in terms of, of the reaction from the federal government, from our government here in Ontario, other health experts, do you think that there was damage control uh, or you think it was successful over the last several hours? Well, I do, I do think that and I do give credit to, to all the governments, federally and the provincial governments who jumped on and basically said, look, at our our NASI, our, our organization is basically saying that, you know, what they're trying to say is mixed mix doses between Pfizer and Moderna uh, is perfectly fine and safe and, and, and efficacious. And I think that I think did help because it, it were pretty quick off the mark to be able to do that. But there's also some lasting damage to say, well, if who is a global organization and they're saying what this thing, then who are we to say something else? So there is some some issues, but I do think that we were able to at least stem some of the some of the crisis that could have otherwise been uh, been out there. Charles Souza, your reaction to all of this? Well, it's unfortunate. Obviously, um, Nasty also missed up, did a misstep some time ago, and yes. this only creates even more doubt in terms of the efficacy or the quality of these vaccines. But I think Nasty did a much better job this time around, uh, talking about the results that have been had recognizing that Europe, UK, Spain, Germany, elsewhere have also been doing some interchangeable uh, work with mRNA vaccines. Canadians, you know, uh, reports show that these vaccines have been effective even against the Delta variant. So we are having some success. So I think they're trying to reaffirm the good news story. The fact that Hugh came out with this notion is unfortunate. Nasty had lost some of its um, it's relevant during the last go around. So this does create doubt in people's mind. And, um, but hey, it's, this is Coke and Pepsi. That's, that's, that we're dealing with. And people say that it's, they've been, the, 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 those that are in authority say it is interchangeable. And when taken under direction, it's appropriate. And for those AstraZeneca first dose recipients as well, they have uh, three different uh, varieties to choose from, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and Pfizer. Uh, Karen, what did you think about what came out of the WHO and then reaction to it here to kind of stem any confusion or or hesitancy? You know what, Jane? I actually thought of, Charles, I thought of your comments a couple months back. When, when people go to get the flu shot, they don't ask who manufactures <laughs> yeah. the vaccine, right? Like, it, it, it's just we're in a world that's all new to us. And so now suddenly that there is a desire to know who manufactured a vaccine. But, you know, when I took my kids to get vaccinated against, you know, rubella, polio, and the things that they are required to get vaccinated, I certainly never thought to ask who manufactured the vaccine. Good point. Me neither. <laughs> Right. Like it, it, it kind of doesn't make any sense. And, and from an epidemiological perspective, yeah, maybe there's not enough studies to conclusively state um, from a scientific way that this is this is OK to do. But from a practical standpoint, she, she had no business opening her mouth because now it calls into question vaccine passports that Europe is unfolding. It calls into question, you know, people's own uh, comfort with what they how they have been vaccinated. And it actually didn't do any good to anybody. And so, and, 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 and I think the most damaging aspect to it is that it gave people another reason to tune out public health. Yes. Mm. And, and I think that is probably the most damaging aspect. When public health opens up their mouth without contextual, like without figuring out the, the greater picture and the context of it, it does, they do a disservice to themselves because then people give, give themselves permission to ignore advice that they think is not relevant. Well, and John, the other thing, too, is that when the this chief scientist at the WHO did clarify, she said she was referring to individuals, that individuals should not mix and match doses, and that 
public health agencies can do so safely based on research. What individuals around the world are choosing their vaccines? <laughs> well, and, and whether or not, yeah, and whether or not, you know, their respective jurisdictions, be it if they're in Canada, the U.S. or whatever other parts of the world that they're dealing with, it just seems it just seems so hand-fisted. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it was just irresponsible. Um, but again, I think to Karen's point, it, it, it just gives more reason for people to tune that out, to tune out public health agencies, you know, especially who that's, that's, that's the world, you know, the world leader uh, and supposed to be the world, um, you know, a, a thought leader when it comes to all things health related. But, you know, I do think that, you know, when you, when you say, okay, look, whatever, whatever who says, we're focusing on what, what our Canadian government is saying and doing. And I think that, that Massey and, and Charles was right to say that Massey's had its own problems in the past, but I think coming out quickly and, and the government, the prime minister and premiers coming out quickly and, and their notes to say that, look, you know, we're, we, we still believe and we're still very, very confident that mixing, mixing doses are, are important because as you see now, right, the people are moving to second doses in, in huge, huge amounts. And that is a positive thing. And, and they're not all going to get either Moderna or Pfizer, depending on what they got the first dose. Um, but, but they, they, they just need to do it. If we have a, a stall or a delay uh, in second doses, that's a problem because especially now that the premier, uh, especially in Ontario, is looking to open up uh, stage three and beyond, you know, as of the end of this week. And we are going to move right into that discussion in just a moment. I, I do want to ask you, Charles, and I was impressed by this comment, and it has nothing to do with the fact that she's with the Liberal government in Ottawa, but Karina Gould, the International Development Minister, made a point of saying, listen, I've, she said, I've sat on panels, global panels, and other people in different countries are really impressed with the way that Canada has devised this mix-and-match strategy to get people double vaccinated as quickly as possible it's a matter of supply and uh and to karen's point we would normally never ask where we're getting that supply and uh, in canada's case they're trying to expedite as many of these vaccines as quickly as possible to as many people as possible and they've succeeded we've actually our second doses are now substantive uh given what we had anticipated and I think it's been it's been very effective, and it is effective. Everyone's saying that that, that our our level of hospitalizations and so forth is diminished tremendously. And this is not a cure to the to the to to the issue. It's a matter of minimizing the impact when it happens. Obviously, people are still going to get coronavirus. They're still going to even with those even those that have been double vaccinated. But the efficacy has been tremendous uh, with both Moderna and Pfizer and the mixing of, uh, that is interchangeable between the mRNA. So uh, it's appropriate, and I, and, I, and I think Nasty did a better job this time around to give that comfort as well. We will uh, delve into this further in the second half of the show on mixing of doses with a panel of health experts, but I do want to carry on with our strategy panel and get into some other topics as well. Um, you mentioned, John, Step 3 reopening, which was moved up five days to this Friday at 12.01 a.m. Karen, about time, or has the reopening process been too um, too cautious? I, I think it, personally speaking, has been too cautious because, you know, again, we've we've had the long Ontario has had the longest lockdown of any jurisdiction in North America, and we're approaching the most vaccination rate, like the highest vaccination rate. So we and and we're not first out of the gate. Like we've had opportunities to see the the effect of vaccine in the UK, in the United States, in Israel. Like we've we have been able to see it work, and so. If, if we were, you know, if we were in Israel back in January, I would say we definitely need a cautious reopening approach because we don't actually know how this is going to work. But we've had the benefit of seven months of watching it work. Yes. <laughs> so I don't understand why we are so hesitant. And, and also, like, some of it, again, doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you say that a retail store can only have 25% capacity, but the grocery store can have 50 A store is a store. Right? And, and so... It's just some of it is just it's it's just ludicrous and and so it, from my perspective, thank goodness it's happening um, because again I've been closed for a long time, but you know I I think it is time for people to feel more comfortable that they can interact that, that they can reengage and that I I think the government has a role to play in saying to people it, you know what we've got this it, the virus will be with us but we're going to need to learn how to live with it and if you're vaccinated there's 
there, there's, you, you now have a, you now have more opportunities to live in a, in, in a less constrained way. And I think it's very important that the, ma- the government get that message in. Well, and that's the, that is the messaging, isn't it? Um, you know, and the importance, John, of having clear messaging around step three reopening. And then it's not officially called step four. But when we finally do go back to normal. Yeah, and I think, and I think the government sort of has this has this done right. I, I take a slightly different view than, than Karen. Only, only in that I, I I don't blame the government for being cautious. I think that you know, in the end, it's it's probably done us well to be cautious, given the fact that there's new variants that were coming around, and and you know, the fact that we were at least a bit more cautious in opening up our stores and and getting our our folks and uh, ready. But I do think this particular strategy has worked better than the color codes that that we've tried in the past and some of the other, uh, you know, strategies that, that the government's used in, in some ways to, to get us back together again. I, you know, look, there was never a playbook on this. And we've talked about this before, Jane, where this is such a new pandemic and it's been now a year and a half. And yes, we've learned a lot over the course of the last year and a half, especially how to deal with it and, and the vaccines that are coming out. We've had some, some, uh, some false starts and some some bad issues with vaccines, but it all seems to be working well now that people are, are getting vaccines and, and stores are opening. So, yeah, you know what? Do I wish that it would have opened up a little bit sooner? Sure, I do. But I do think that the government did the best they could, given the fact that they were so unknown, still some unknown uh, that was around, and also some of the international travel that was still coming into Ontario. So you needed to be cautious, especially in the most populous province in the country. So, you know, I'm looking forward to everything being opened up on stage three. I think it's the right way to go. Um, and I do look forward to what is not going to be stage four, but is going to be much more of an open or less restrictive phase uh, beyond that, which I suspect might very well come in August, given the fact that we're doing so well with our vaccines, notwithstanding who's uh, you know, yeah. miscommunications. <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, Charles, yeah. John brings up a good point, and it's a reminder of all of the different approaches and strategies that the Ford PCs have gone through since the beginning of this thing. And remember back at the beginning when Premier Ford said, no, I want to keep Ontario, I want to keep everything the same across Ontario. And he succumbed to pressure to get into the color system and different regions were in different colors. Then, you know, we've gone back to the whole province being uh, being locked down and opening in steps uh, all together. It's very interesting to look back on the entire experience. It is. And uh, and to John's point, it's a very difficult situation for any government to have to deal with because of this. There's so many unknowns. But as far as stage three, listen, this thing opened up on Sunday after the Euro Cup win. <laughs> yeah. All these were closed down, and everybody was outside, and it was outdoor parties and concerts. You wouldn't have known that there had been a COVID experience or a pandemic. Charles, I'm sorry so your team didn't do really well. <laughs> but we'll see the follow But I think what's important is just the metrics, right? The number of cases in ICUs and hospitals, the community burden has been dropping, um, and, and that's the result. And, and I think as a consequence of everyone having their vaccines, we've all said, and so has the premier for that matter, you need needles and arms, and the moment we have more of those, the moment we get that happening and herd immunity thereafter, then we can open up safely. And, uh, you know, he's, I think we're at that point. I'm not going to second-guess what has happened in the past, but uh, I like the idea of the whole province working in, in, in lockstep just so that there's no confusion. If you're well, right, and you don't have to worry about travel between regions and all of that. That was an issue when we were in the color system. If you're just joining us, it's our Tuesday strategy panel here on Zoomer Radio's Fight Back. I'm Jane for Libby, joined by Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Karen Stintz. I want to ask all three of you, and it's just it's just an observation uh, that Premier Ford and his cabinet ministers have been relatively quiet of late. Uh, you know, we got very used to seeing them on a daily basis and then on an every second day basis. And uh, we did see the premier eulogize our our late Toronto police constable yesterday, but they have not really been out there publicly. Um, What are your thoughts about this? Is that a strategy, Karen, do you think? Yeah, I do. And I think it's a successful strategy uh, because there, I think, was a a point at which um, perhaps the uh, premier Ford was overexposed. And, uh, you know, put himself out there and, you know, and again, if there's really nothing to say, there's really no reason to have a press conference. And right now, 
you know, I think the only thing people want to know is, you know, when can we reopen? Okay, now that's been answered. I don't think there's the daily need for updates. And so, and I, I think to his credit and to the credit of his team, they realize that he, he might be um, too much in the public, not giving new information, potentially opening himself up to missteps. And so to have a little less exposure, I think, is a good thing. John, on the flip side of that, I'm sure that they are strategizing his team and 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 wondering, okay, the daily numbers overall are coming down almost every day. We're seeing that trend. This would be a time where he could bask in the glow of that, but that's not happening. No, and I think that once you once you put together a strategy and 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 sort of and act on it, I think you want to stick to it. And, and if you're not going to show them out, if you're not going to bring them out when things are bad, uh, then when things are good and you start doing it, you know, you know, voters, voters can see right through that. But I just think overall, I've always been a fan of Ronald Reagan's, the former president's um, strategy, which is to say, you know, people want to see leaders when there's something to say and, and there's uh, announcements to be made. And, and you do get you know, the, the, the prospect of being oversaturated or people just see you too often on TV and they, they tend to tune you out. They don't listen to you anymore because, they'll, they'll, you know, you'll talk about everything uh, and nothing specific. So I do think that leaders should be out there when there's something specific and, and, and serious to, to be able to to impart to uh, to their voters. And I think the strategy that they've used now is, is the right one. Uh, I think it's working. And, uh, you know, you'll see the premier every once in a while when you need to. Uh, and then when you do see him, I think voters will be a little bit more attentive to what he has to say. You've, you know, from being behind the scenes yourself, uh, Charles Souza, as a former cabinet minister, what is the strategy involved in, in getting getting the politicians to pull back a bit from public view? Yeah, I agree with the panel. I think it's important for uh, the premier and and I'm talking strictly politics now, um, not to be overexposed. And uh, in our previous government, oftentimes our leader was out there much too often. People were tuning out; they weren't listening, even when they were saying when she was saying good things. Um, so I think Doug Ford is doing the appropriate thing to stay out of the limelight. During these times, let others bask, and certainly the, the front line and others that are doing the work. But make no mistake, he's out there. He may not be out there uh, on the on the broader view, but on the local side, he's going to local communities and he's making announcements. He's a, he's being approachable. Uh, I've I, I've come across a number of of decisions made that affect a local community as opposed to the province in its entirety. So there is some campaigning going on. And he's doing that, and so are some of his ministers. And again, that's a smart thing to do. Take the opportunity you have now to do those uh, campaign trails. Right, the the summer tours. One more topic to go here. Um, And a lot of people who aren't following politics and all the intricacies of what's going on might find this a bit in the weeds. But the federal Green Party and the latest slight against leader Anime Paul. So... Basically, we were reporting on it this morning in Zoomer Radio News. According to insiders, several insiders in the Green Party, party executives had moved to withhold $250,000 in funding from the leader, Annamie Paul, from her campaign. She's trying to win a downtown seat, Toronto Centre, in what will likely be a federal election later in the year. The motion apparently has yet to pass. Why... I mean, it just shows how fractious this party is uh, at the current time, John. Well, on a scale of one to ten, ten being absolutely crazy nuts, this is this is ten. Yeah, like I, I can't understand. <laughs> <laughs> I can't understand, and and I know, and and you know, Charles uh, Charles is a member of a, of a of a political party as I am. I, I you know, we all have you know internal grumblings and issues that we deal with and we try to contain them as much as possible but sometimes it gets into the uh, into the as they say the air the dirty laundry but this is crazy i i thought anime paul when they first elected her was a really impressive leader and somebody that they could really build around given that they built around elizabeth elizabeth may for so much for so long and and now they're they're just chipping away at her and and for for the party to consider i know it's not even passed yet but to consider a motion that would prevent her from running in a riding that she did fairly well. Toronto Centre is a hugely liberal riding. And the fact that she came second in the, in the by-election to replace 
uh, Marneau uh, was impressive. And and they should be doing quite the opposite. They, they should be spending so much money there to get her elected, because if she ever got elected, and she actually lives and has, has, has had history, her family's a history in Toronto Centre, um, it's just beyond me. It, it's just, you're, you're literally handcuffing your leader from getting a seat. So essentially what you're saying is, we don't want you to get elected. We don't want you to be a leader anymore. And if that's the case, then, then they should either do it now before an election campaign or just be quiet, let it be the leader, work the election campaign and deal with it afterwards. Karen, what are your thoughts on all of this? Yeah, you know, it is, um, I, I mean, tactically, it's, I mean, they're self-destructing. Mm-hmm. Um, so if this was an Elizabeth May party, then I, I, you know, if there was ever a question that the Green Party was really an Elizabeth May party, I guess it is just an Elizabeth May party. But but the other reality is that if, if Annie Paul couldn't heal those wounds within her party, then, you know, and I've never met her, and I understand that she's quite talented, but but maybe she shouldn't be the leader of the party because, you know, all, all of this, you know, all of this upset could have been handled. And and if you manage people, then you're managing relationships. And if she can't manage the relationships in her own party, as, as fractious as they might be, then how can she position herself to, to lead to anything greater? And so, you know, I don't normally like to come to those conclusions, but, but this party's blowing itself up and she's the leader of it. Mm-hmm. And she's not, she's not powerless. And, and, and yet she hasn't, been able to do what is required to pull the Green Party out of this mess and actually lead it forward. And Charles, we'll go to you last on this. Um, is this about Annamie Paul's leadership or is this about deep-seated issues within the federal Green Party? Yeah, you have to wonder uh, if it's not both. And unfortunately, you don't go into a non-conference budget just prior to uh, an election campaign. In July 20th, I, I, mind you, yeah, I say that, and then yet you know, Doug Ford won basically after a non-conference measure at the last minute in the, in the provincial party as well, just prior to that last election. But this is different. Um, to, to the effect that the Green Party really doesn't have a lot of um, members and, 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 ref- and representation across the country, ever more important for them to rally around the leader and ensure that she wins her, her seat. And for them to take these measures, yeah, they're just shooting themselves, and 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 then you have you know uh, Jenica Aquin who, who who crossed the floor recently. Those 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 all are, are a terrible reflection on this party, which stands for some pretty good things. And notwithstanding the partisanship, they do stand for some good things that people in the pro- in the country want. And for them to be admired in, in these other matters, that's really unfortunate for them. But. Hey, uh, it's better for for the liberals. So by all means, <laughs> knock yourselves out. Well, I will have the pleasure with talking you with you all next Tuesday. Uh, Libby will be back uh, a week from tomorrow. So uh, we'll see if there are any more signs of uh, the federal election to come this fall. Maybe maybe we can all place a date, <laughs> place a bet <laughs> on it. But, I, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting. You know, we always say in the news business, the dog days of summer, it's hard to come up with news. But uh, clearly there is still a lot to talk about in the middle of July. So thank you all again for your time. Thank Thank you. you. All the best. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, everybody. Our Tuesday strategy panel, John Capobianco, Senior Vice President, Senior Partner at Fleischman Hillard High Road, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and Charles Souza, former Liberal Ontario Finance Minister. Jane, for Libby, you will want to grab a phone line for the next segment. If you are at all concerned that you had two different COVID vaccines for your first and second doses after a misstep at the World Health Organization yesterday, a panel of health experts will address your questions as we get into the back half of today's fight back. Numbers to call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.